Hey, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse family. I wanted to remind you that if you are considering travel nursing, you can go to their website today at trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse, fill out a profile and start seeing opportunities right now all across the country. You can see what they pay. You can see the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. And even before you fill out the rest of your profile and start taking the actual steps to to take an assignment. I personally have started this process and I, I want you to know that I have 100% confidence in Trusted Health and their ability to take care of me as a nurse. So if you're considering doing this, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and just give me some feedback. Let me know what you think. If you guys are using Trusted Health right now, I want to hear your stories and what you have experienced working with Trusted Health. I've heard from several people. I've only heard amazing things. That's literally all I hear from the people that are using Trusted Health is how much they appreciate them, how the nurse advocates work for them, and how easy it is to do travel nursing using Trusted Health. They are the only company that I would use to do travel nursing just based on what I know from them. I trust them. They are an amazing company and they definitely live up to their name, Trusted Health. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile today. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I want to welcome you back for another fun and interesting week of conversation about good and bad things done by people in healthcare. And we have a really fascinating show planned for you today for today's bad nurse story. This is a very complicated topic, so I've been thinking about doing it for a while, and it's sort of been difficult for me to figure out how to talk about it because it is so complicated. So I thought that rather than taking one story that happened regarding, you know, one individual, I thought it would be helpful to have several little sub stories that can illustrate the different things that can happen in regards to nurse practitioners and other providers that are being targeted, being arrested, convicted, and sentenced to decades in prisons for overprescribing or illegally prescribing opiates in the United States. And I think there may be a lot of providers out there who think that this couldn't happen to them because they would never work at a pain clinic or they would never overprescribe. And, you know, ethically, they just couldn't even imagine them even getting anywhere near this. But I think you're going to be really surprised about at least one of these stories in particular. So just get ready for a very interesting set of stories about this. It's, it's a cautionary tale for sure. And everyone, I think, will be fascinated by it and want to hear it. But in particular, if you are thinking of going to nurse practitioner school, you've got to stick around for this story. And then we're going to discuss our guest host, Dean Lorna, who has had so many amazing accomplishments in her career. I just can't wait for you guys to hear all about her. For one thing, before we even get to the bad nurse story, we may as well talk about the fact that Dean Lorna is the Dean of Nursing for Samuel Merritt University, a very prestigious private school in California, and a sponsor of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome, Dean Lorna. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And I know how important that topic of prescribing and opiates and things is. And I think it's an, it's an opportunity for 
us to educate nurses and to forewarn them so that they can do everything they can and and do their due diligence to not only protect themselves, but to protect patients as well. Patients who really have actual pain and, and how do you manage that, right? No one actually teaches you or gives you a course in how to do that other than these are the things that happen and this is how you prescribe and, and what do we do to help the nurses of the future and the current nurses that are practicing? So I think you've chosen an amazing topic and I'm excited to be here to share my knowledge and, and my experience with what I've seen over the years. So thank you. Thank you for being here. I think that it's just going to make all the difference to have your perspective working with the School of Nursing. And so I'm really excited about getting into that. Just so you guys know, Samuel Merritt University, it is a private school in in Oakland, California, and it's ranked in the top nursing schools in the United States and in California. And right now they are offering tons of scholarship opportunities starting at $10,000 for their MSN and nurse practitioner programs. So be sure if you're even thinking about going back to school, visit them at smumsn.com for more information. That's smumsn.com. So I'm really excited to get to discuss this bad nurse story with you because I definitely think it's going to be interesting to have your perspective, the perspective of a professor, of a dean, you know, who's teaching future nurse practitioners. You know, while we're going through all these details of what all happened in these different cases, they are all, some of them are are similar. You know, mm-hmm. some, some of them mm-hmm. are, are just eerily similar. And the final one that we're going to get to is the one that I think many of you are going to just be quake have you shaken in your boots a little bit (laughs) at the thought but there are ways of protecting yourself so we're going to get into that too the first case that we're going to talk about is the case of a clinic in east tennessee it was called the breakthrough pain clinic a lot of people in especially law enforcement refer to clinics like this as pill mills this is the story of sandra kincaid she was 63 years old she and her husband Randy Kincaid, who was 58 years old, opened their own pain therapy clinic in May of 2009. And the clinic was used to distribute controlled substances, oxycodone, morphine. We're all familiar with all of these, you know, opioids, benzodiazepines, that sort of thing. The setup at first was entirely legal, which is very surprising because none of the family held any sort of qualifications or medical license. I was absolutely shocked when I read that pain clinics in the state of Tennessee before 2017 enjoyed a regulation loophole. I could not believe it, Dean Lorna. I mean, I I couldn't believe it when I I read it it. either. (laughs) That that was amazing. Thank goodness things have changed, but I don't understand how those kinds of things happened either. But it goes to show you how huge this problem is because someone doing this to make money and to to service uh, clients who don't have the kind of pain that we treat in healthcare is disturbing. It's very disturbing. And I I can't believe 2017 was not that long ago. I can't believe this the opioid. We have a crisis in East Tennessee. I know it's all over the country, but in particular, this area, Appalachia, is it's just horrible. So sad. And I can't believe that all the way up until 2017, because it's been going on for decades, this was allowed to happen. It's it's very disheartening just just to uh, and, and discouraging to to find that out. They did eventually hire doctors and nurses and, and physician assistants part-time. This was an all-cash business, and their employees were paid in cash between $500 to $1,000 per shift. They had a few other mm-hmm. red flags, so they didn't have any. They were not purchasing medical equipment. That's a pretty big red flag there. They really weren't 
doing any real exams. Mm -hmm. They didn't require referrals. They didn't take appointments. This was all Mm -hmm. walk-in. And then as they investigated closer, authorities also discovered that multiple people in one household would hold identical prescriptions for identical pain complaints. There was at least one patient. I know there was probably many, many more, but at least one that died from an overdose from this clinic. And that led to a raid on the clinic in December of 2010. And during this raid, police seized prescription narcotics, guns, about $700,000 in cash. That blows my mind. The prescription narcotics led to the discovery that Sandra Kincaid, in fact, herself was suffering from substance use disorder and was paying patients for a portion of their prescriptions. She was charged with 24 counts of drug trafficking, money laundering, and landed herself a 39-year jail sentence for this. And then, of course, there's other people working in the office, her husband, two children, Morgan and Henry. There were two doctors, Dr. Gail Thomas, Dr. James Joyner, and they had an assistant, Walter Blankenship. They had five nurse practitioners. And then they had another suspect that was indicted at the beginning, David Brickhouse. He actually drove himself into a concrete wall of an overpass at full speed. And a lot of people speculate that that was probably not an accident that he just did did not want to face, you know. And so Dr. Thomas was suspected to have ignored all the warning signs of addiction in patients, which could have possibly caused the death of two victims, one from an overdose and then one from a suicide because of the effects, you know, of the narcotics. He got a 10-year prison sentence. And then Dr. Dr. Joyner received an almost six-year sentence. The nurse practitioners, all, everyone received various sentences. I don't know. I mean, this this case, when you think about it, what all involved, this was a large pain clinic. You think of all these people working there, the millions of dollars that had to filter through that and all the people that were affected, the trickle-down effect that must have happened in this entire area. It just gives me yeah. chills. Yeah. And you, you see the money, the kind of money that can be made in this in this area. And so it drives people. And then that addictive behavior. And so you have two driving forces that are very difficult to manage, right? Money and addiction, problematic everywhere you look. I mean, and it destroys lives. It destroys communities. It's it's such a destructive piece of, of our society. There was a more recent bust of a quote pill mill that happened in Tennessee that ended up being even bigger I mean, there's definitely, obviously, as I said, an opioid drug problem in Tennessee. Uh, That mean that may be the biggest understatement in the history of our solar system. It's so bad here. This particular bust that happened involved 56-year-old Sylvia Hofstetter. She worked at a pain clinic in Hollywood, Florida. And at the time, a lot of those so-called pill mills in the area were being raided and shut down. And that caused her and three of her coworkers to move to Tennessee because a lot of their customers came from Tennessee. So rather than having the customers drive all the way down to Florida, they said, oh, they're targeting pain clinics in Florida. Why don't we just move our business up there to where a lot of our customers are? They set up shop, you know, of course, away from all those police investigations. And so she was supposed to be ensuring that they continue this flow of customers to the new clinic, but she ended up opening her own clinic instead. And because she did this, she ended up getting over $4 million of income from this. So she, you know, running her own place, she opened four pain clinics in East Tennessee. And then, so she and her new coworkers made over $21 million by distributing over 11 million opioid pills that all the typical oxycodone, morphine, all of those things. And due to these large numbers of distribution, her clinics obviously raised suspicion 
to the police. So on March 4th, 2015, she was indicted with the conspiracy to commit money laundering, conspiracy to distribute oxycodone, and then seven counts of money laundering. They gave her a 33-year sentence along with a $3.6 million fine to pay back. And then three co-defendants were also charged, and they got somewhere around three to four years. So that was a couple of cases that were local here to me. I live in Tennessee, and there are cases all across the country, though, all across the country. And I also wanted to point out that it's not just nurse practitioners. We are not just picking on nurse practitioners because Tennessee Nurses Association is fighting for nurse practitioners to have full practice authority. It's, it's literally what they're they're focusing on right now. And a little over a year ago before COVID, when we were still doing things like this, I went to the Nurses Day on the Hill in Nashville and was talking to our senator and talking to our Congress people about changing this and giving nurse practitioners full practice authority. And one of the things that this, our senator said to, to me was the perception is that nurse practitioners a lot of them are to blame for the opioid crisis that they are overprescribing. And if you look at, actually, if you look at the it's research, not that's not true. No, it's not it true. isn't true. But doctors, for some reason, are doing a pretty good job of getting that <laughs> that narrative out think, there. You know, I, I lived in Tennessee for for a while, and I think that there are certain states sometimes that the medical association has a stronger voice, and I think Tennessee is one. And 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 sadly. Sadly, one of my concerns is these pill factories, pill mills, set a standard and cause the culture and the communities to believe this is healthcare. These are not healthcare settings. These are places taking advantage of patients, of people who, you know, taking advantage, maybe not necessarily of people who have actual pain, but those who are substance abusers, right? So then you have this, you want to, everyone wants to lump everyone into one bag. Everyone who prescribes medication is bad because of this. And remember what you said in the beginning, that first one, the first clinic you described, they weren't even healthcare professionals. So we have to be careful and to be able to tease out true healthcare professional organizations and, and practitioners who are doing their due diligence to operate effectively and appropriately versus pill mills that have nothing to do necessarily with healthcare. They're taking advantage of those who have substance abuse disorders, right? So substance abuse disorders is one thing over here, but pain management for those who actually have true pain for some reason, nerve problems, all sorts of things. That's a whole different ballgame. And to put it all into one, it really hurts all healthcare professionals. It hurts patients who truly have pain because then those that are trying to do what we'll talk about in a few minutes, the other story, when people are trying to do it the right way and then they're targeted because everyone is seen the same is hugely a problem. And we know we don't have enough healthcare professionals to begin with. And to say that nurse practitioners should not be able to practice based on training because of someone who does something illegally is problematic to me. And we need to be able to understand the differences. I will also point out that the larger of these two busts that happened more recently, there were physicians that were overseeing the nurse practitioners. So what good did that do? That didn't really do, that really right. didn't help anything. Right. We can't blame one or the other. We, everyone has, you know, every 
every healthcare worker who has prescriptive authority, as you said, when you first started the show, is at risk for something like this happening to them. It's very true. Yeah, some of these cases definitely turned deadly. There was a doctor, six-year-old Dr. Regan Nichols, who began as an osteopathic physician who was investigated by police after five of her patients died due to her prescriptions between 2010 and 2013. That is a short amount of time for you know, to have that many patients that would uh, that this would happen to. It was found that she was prescribing her patients hundreds to thousands of opioids every month. She prescribed over 1,800 opioids to the five victims during the months of, of their deaths. All five patients died due to multi-drug toxicity, with three of the patients being prescribed a known lethal combination of narcotic opioid pain reliever, muscle relaxer, and an anti-anxiety drug, which, you know, we all know what those are. And so her being a physician should have known that this would be a lethal mix. And yet she signed off on each one of the prescriptions to all three of these victims. She knowingly prescribed controlled substances without a legitimate medical need, leading them into a life of addiction or worsening their already, an addiction that they already had. And then in June of 2017, Nichols was charged with five counts of second degree murder. She was only found guilty of one count of second-degree murder and not guilty of the other four, but she was sentenced to 10 years in prison for second-degree murder. So there is another doctor, and just like I said, I just wanted to kind of give different perspectives and not pick on one one type of a provider there. So this is 75-year-old George Blotty, a physician in Nassau County, New York, was a general practitioner that had no training or accreditation in pain management. Regardless, he started seeing patients out of an old Radio Shack store in 2018. Apparently, all of the Radio Shack signs were still visible. The racks that were originally there for the store were still on the walls. He ended up losing that place. So he started seeing patients out of his own car that was parked in the parking lot of the hotel where he was living. He would prescribe these patients medication with no review of medical history or any patient exams, allegedly prescribed opioid painkillers to people he'd never even met or spoken to at the request of his patients, ignored signs of addiction, prescribed um, his patients huge amounts of painkillers. And then after an investigation into several overdoses, he was placed, of course, on the police's radar and they were charged with five counts of second-degree murder, 11 counts of reckless endangerment in the first degree. The charge of second-degree murder is under the legal theory that depraved indifference to human life was what led to the victim's deaths. So just you know, kind of keeping that in mind, one of the patients that died was a 31-year-old volunteer firefighter that struggled with opioid abuse for many years and was showing signs of liver failure. He prescribed the patient a diuretic and potassium supplement. He also prescribed the patient 180 oxycodone pills. The victim died 11 days later from an acute intoxication of oxycodone and oxymorphone. He's currently in custody and has willingly given up his medical license and pleaded not guilty to the charges. But if he's convicted of even the, the main charge, he faces a maximum of 25 years um, to life in prison. So those are some stories that are sort of what maybe most people might think of when you talk about the opioid crisis and pain clinics and pill mills, you know, pill mill busts and and that sort of thing. Those are probably the things that come to mind. But there's one story that I found that this story came from an article from the Journal of Nurse Practitioners that's called Nurse Practitioners in the World of Pain Management, A Cautionary Tale. And this is the one that we really wanted to focus on. This nurse practitioner, she ran her own private practice. This is in the state of Texas. A very small percentage 
of this practice was managing some patients who were having chronic pain. Her husband was the office manager and the receptionist. He worked there in the office with her. She had um, a nurse practitioner that worked and an assistant, and they were just in the office one day, a regular day at the clinic, and out of nowhere, six people dressed all in black with ski masks burst through the front door while aiming assault rifles at everyone in the clinic, including an elderly patient and her caregiver. They started ordering everyone to get on the floor and put their hands behind their backs and to not talk to each other. How horrifying this must have been. She thought for sure they were going to kill her. She thought, they're going to kill me and they're going to kill everyone here, as you can imagine. Because when they first came in, I'm sure they probably announced who they were, but she it was just so shocking that she didn't hear it. So she didn't know what was going on. She saw the words or the letters DEA on the back of one of their jackets and then realized what was going on. And they started carrying out file cabinets and computers. And they told her that she had been writing unauthorized prescriptions for controlled substances. So one of the agents said that 55% of the prescriptions written by her over the past 10 months had been for controlled substances. And she was sure that that was wrong. She knew that 80% of her practice was for family medicine patients and only about 20% of her practice involved pain management. But because when this happens, you know, and the government barges in, can you just imagine? Mm -hmm. I can't. I honestly just can't. It's it's overwhelming to just think about it. Mm -hmm. She it scared her to death and she thought she had no other choice but to relinquish her license. She thought she was going to be taken away to jail and her husband and her children were going to be vulnerable. So she did what she thought she had to do. She didn't ask for an attorney. She, I'm sure she was just in shock. And who thinks about this stuff right. happening? I thought about something when I read the article. I thought, when you think of the police coming in, you always think about your rights. I won't say anything until I have an attorney. But I don't think we think about that with DEA. It's such a different kind of feeling to have them come. And do you ever think about, I need an attorney? Because it's, it is, it's frightening, it's overwhelming. And the way in which they burst in, pushed people down, that was inappropriate to begin with. And they were treating them as if they were one of those pill mills, not a legal standing clinic treating. And a senior, an older person, that would, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. I don't think I would have heard them say DEA. And maybe she didn't hear. We don't know. Maybe they didn't say it. She didn't remember them saying it at all. So I'm sure the shock of all of that just was very disorienting. So even though she did have a physician supervising her practice, pain management was never more than 20% of her practice. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of her patients and, um, and income came from family medicine unrelated to pain management, it didn't stop them from raiding her office and it didn't stop the nursing board from building a case against yes. her. Yes. Now, How scary is that? Very, very scary. I can't imagine. Because most of us as nurses, I mean, I've, I've gone to bat, I've had to go to board meetings and you realize you're powerless in that situation, right? That they are the, they are protecting consumers, right? But nurses and physicians we're consumers as well. And so where was that protection for her at that moment? So yeah, I, I can see why she was fearful. And then that was shocking to me that the DEA asked for her DEA licensure right there on the spot and took things off the wall. That I thought 
guilty until proven innocent? Is you take it before finding out what if she wasn't the person they thought she was? She she was maybe she was someone filling in for her that day. You know, there were so many problems with that that story that were concerning to me, and I put myself in that situation. I probably would have done the same thing she did, just not knowing. Because it would be so intimidating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the complaint ultimately filed by the nursing board included a 37-page report by a board-certified anesthesiologist and former president of the state's pain society. And the report cited that over an eight-month period, she issued nearly 600 prescriptions for controlled substances to nearly 250 patients. And the report outlined her prior affiliation with pain clinics, her lack of training as a pain management specialist, and then her spotty documentation of patient complaints and her use of medication cocktails that are known for, quote, abuse and the potential for overdose. So this is what the nursing board came up with in this big report. So in order to defend herself, she had to, first of all, distinguish her practice from pill mill. So what she said is, well, you know, pill mills have long lines or big crowds that line up to see the provider, groups of several people arrive in a single vehicle to receive pain medication. This is very common. Mm -hmm. Armed security guards Mm -hmm. to protect the facility. Because as we, you know, heard before, you know, you think about some of those others, how $700,000 in cash, they're going to be a target. Also, pain is treated only with pills and not other clinically proven pain management methods. Patients choose their own medicine often with no questions asked. It's like, what do you want? And here, I'll just write a prescription. Doctors direct patients or providers direct patients to a specific pharmacy where it's likely that they will be asked no questions. Medical records and x-rays are not requested or required for prescription. Patients are told when to come back to receive more. Providers don't provide a physical, you know, like an exam. And also conducting business exclusively in cash. So that's, she sort of set that up as like, this is what a pill mill looks like. And then this is what I look like, how I differ from a pill mill. I don't have big, long lines of crowds because they would be beating down your door That's right. if you were a, a true pill mill. That's right. Right? My daughter-in-law is a nurse practitioner, and, and we talk about this all the time. She, There was one practice she actually walked away from because there were just patients coming left and right all day long wanting prescriptions, right, for opioids. And she said, I can't do this. And, and she wanted to do an assessment. And to me, it should be kind of a red flag that goes up when you hear someone typically the nurse practitioner is going to say, let's try physical therapy. Let's try all of these alternative methods to see if we can control the pain. Prescription is the last on the list of things. And so when a patient refuses all of those, that's a red flag. You're not willing to do the work. So, And so one of my colleagues said, that's when you just say no. And I believe in the, in our society now, I think about nursing education. I think about hospital stays, all the patient satisfaction tools that we're given. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? So I think about all of our faculty who want the students to be satisfied, but sometimes we cannot lose sight of what we should be doing because of satisfaction. I've told students on many occasions, 
you have never been a nurse. How do you know what the faculty needs to give you? How can you demand from the faculty what you should have when you've never been a nurse before? We are the experienced nurses. We are the ones training you. We know what you need to be successful. Same thing here. I am the nurse practitioner. I know what we can do to help you with your pain management. And if only if the only thing you want is a prescription, like my colleague says, you say no, right? And too often because of satisfaction, wanting your patients to be happy and pleased with your care, sometimes, like you said, is there's where that quick decision can cause you problems for the rest of your career because all of a sudden, well, what will it hurt? Let's just try it then. That's what they want. We need to say no more often than we do. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. We have a company, Echo. It's a technology company. They have come out with this like little device that you attach to your stethoscope and it enhances the sound. It's the coolest thing. I was curious about it. So I reached out to them. They came back and they were like, hey, let us send you a stethoscope. See what you think. They actually have partnered with Littman and they literally took the cardiology floor and they've put the echo technology that enhances the sound. So they sent this to me. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I want to try this. And I took it to work and I brought it into the break room and was opening it up and everybody was like, what is that? I'm like, it's a, it's a new stethoscope. I was so excited about it. So I put it on and I immediately go up to a nurse and I'm like listening and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like the best stethoscope I have ever used in my life. It was just so crystal clear. I could not believe the quality of like the heart sounds, the lung sounds, the bowel sounds. I was just listening to everything. And then what was funny is I looked down and there's this little button on it. I'm like, what does this thing do? I push the button and lo and behold, like this little light comes on. It was unbelievable. You can hear every sound that the inside of a human body could possibly make. It's, I, it's just unbelievable. So they decided to sponsor our podcast, <laughs> probably because I was just like doing backflips, like going, I love this so much. I will literally, I, I have no problem shouting from the rooftops. You need to get one of these stethoscopes. If you want to know what a heart is supposed to sound like, what lungs are supposed to sound like, what bowel sounds are supposed to sound like, you need this technology. It's unbelievable. It's Echo. And the name of the actual stethoscope with the core technology is the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. It's the actual stethoscope that they sent me, and it does feature up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation. It can use Bluetooth. It connects to Echo's free app and software that allows you to visualize, record, share, live stream, and analyze heart, lung, and other body sounds. It's crazy. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. You can go to Echo Health, and it's E-K-O-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com, echohealth.com, and use the code G-N-B-N, like good nurse, bad nurse, of course, for $20 off of your purchase, echohealth.com. So, Brayden, you actually reached out to me about CBD Stack because they sponsored a podcast a couple of months ago. And then I was so happy when you reached out to let me know that you really liked the product. So tell everybody your experience with it. So I get chronic headaches. If you saw my life, like what I'm doing, I just had a kid. I'm starting school. I'm moving into a house. I, I just have so much on my plate. So after getting this CBD oil, I tried it. I put it on and within 10 minutes of my headache, it 
started fading away. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. It, it was. So I love CBD Stat. They have an excellent product. I use the 5,000 milligrams. It's a lifesaver. Their product is really pure, very strong. And that's probably the reason why it works so well. Yeah. They have a, a really nice like 30% off yeah. discount. That's That's amazing for all of our listeners. And the way that you get that discount is that you have to go to their website at cbdstat.care. So it's not .com or .org or .net, it's .care. So cbdstat.care, and then you put forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. So, and by doing that, then it sort of takes you to a special portal where you will get 30% off of whatever you order, which is really cool. It is. And it's 100% worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys, if you're interested in it, go to www.cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse and get your 30% off. Yes. And it sounded like she did try to have those boundaries. There were a a few things that, you know, that she, where she sort of went over the line and that's, you know, what we definitely want to highlight. You know, she didn't have the long lines. She only saw five or six patients on average uh, per day. She didn't have several people arriving at her office in a single vehicle. Mm -hmm. There were no armed security guards that were there. And she did treat her patients with pills, of course, but she encouraged exercise and other modalities to address their pain. She decided what pain medications were appropriate. She didn't just let them choose. They were not directed to a specific pharmacy. They, you know, what pharmacy do you use? She was, she was not saying, hey, you really probably need to go to this pharmacy if you want to get, right. you know, be able right. to get your prescription without mm-hmm. any questions. Mm-hmm. So she did all of those things that, you know, right. And that's, that's what was really scary. And then I really want to try to emphasize to people listening to this because she was trying to cross her T's and dot her I's. She was trying to do the, her due diligence and to protect herself and her patients. And so, you know, most of her pain management patients paid in cash. She also accepted other methods of payment. But so in short, she did, she showed that her practice didn't look anything like a pill mill when it came right down to it. I think the only thing she was, like she said in the end of the article, the only thing she probably was guilty of, and this is, this is where human nature, this is the nurse trying to do her due diligence, and we can all fall short because she didn't have the extra training that might have helped her, no different modalities of care that might have helped rather than always giving in to the medication and that pill cocktail she ordered. And she recognized it, teachable moment, sadly, teachable moment after the fact. But look at what she had to go through. That was unnecessary because she had her records in order. She showed the things she tried to do. You're right, she did. But the scary thing is, even with her doing what she knew she should do, (laughs) she was attacked. She nearly lost everything because of this. But she she is a perfect example of what most nurses do, thinking that they're protecting themselves. She did her due diligence, but she learned. And any nurse out there must read this article, must read this article, because she learned a lesson, a huge lesson from this. And she gives some extremely helpful details on what to do moving forward so that you're not as at great a risk as, as others are. And how to identify your practice as being different from pill mills. She did a wonderful job. This is a great article. Yeah. At the end of a long and hard fought battle, she did have to enter into a compromise settlement 
with the Board of Nursing, the agreement preserved her advanced practice nursing license and her ability to operate her clinic and eventually will lead to the return of her controlled substance prescriptive authority. So even though the evidence supported her position that she wasn't running a pill mill, she ultimately acknowledged that she didn't have specialized training in pain management, which is not required. You know, and I understand you suggesting that you do that. You know, it, it's 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 recommended that you get training in a specialty if you're going to do something like that, especially pain management. But it's not required. So how can they use that against her? Exactly. It isn't. And and actually, it's not necessarily suggested. That's the nurse that says, hmm, I want to do this and I know enough, but I need to know more, right? So it's not often suggested. So to hold someone accountable for something that's not often suggested, but then... <laughs> well, why didn't you have the training? It's not mandated. It's not required. If that's going to make a difference, then make it a mandatory um, training for anyone who's doing pain management. Someone in Tennessee, one of the legislators who said that the nurses were problematic, this is one of the things that that legislator should help to fight for, the training in pain management for anyone who's seeing patients. Yes, absolutely. Also, she had had to acknowledge that her medical record keeping was at times inadequate. And what do we always say? If it's not documented, it wasn't done in nursing. That's for all nurses, the the importance of documentation. You know what? We talk about this a lot on this podcast because a lot of nurses, I think, think documentation is just, it gets in the way of patient care. If they let anything go, they tend to want to let the documentation go because of course they don't want to neglect their patient. Yes, you have to ultimately first protect your patient, that your patient comes first, but you have to protect your license too. So you have to make sure, I would say, make sure you know what documentation protects you, protects your license, and just be sure you do that. There's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of boxes we click Mm -hmm. that don't really protect us. That's right. They're there to maybe protect the hospital. I don't know. Just There's just a lot of stuff out there that we, we document that's fluff. But you really have to know what is important to document. And that's what she really needed to know. There should be specialized training in that. You know, what do I need to be making sure I'm documenting? Well, I can tell you a story about that (laughs) because we teach that. When I was a dean at another school, we had nurse practitioner students in one of their first courses. And they were, again, target student satisfaction. They were not satisfied with the content that was being taught during one of their lectures. And they were complaining. They thought, this is not what we need to be great nurse practitioners. We don't want this in our curriculum. And so the faculty were, were just dumbfounded and they were trying to fight with the students. And so, of course, they bring the dean in. I was away at a meeting and I got it, I, I, I logged on through Skype or something. It was a long time ago and Skype was one of the only methods we could use. And I said to them, sitting in the room with the faculty that you have in this room, you have over 200 years experience here. How can you tell them what you need or what you don't need? Because it was practice related. It was about opening your own private practice related information. It wasn't the, how do you assess this? And how do you assess? We don't need that. We just want to know the nurse practitioner stuff guess what? How to maintain your practice, how to 
correctly document things is now we hear from what you just said, hugely important. They thought they didn't need it. And I said, you need to listen to these experienced faculty who have designed a curriculum to help you be your very best so that you have best practice understanding in everything you do. And so the first funny story, the first assignment, they all failed because it's that how do you document certain things, right? How do you how do you maintain practice? How do you get your malpractice insurance? How do you do all of these things that are going to the underlying things that nobody thinks about? How do you do that well? Because this is what she said was almost the thing that broke her. So those things are taught. And too often our students think about, you know, ER and all these shows, and they just want to be these great nurses that can jump in and make do all these skills. <laughs> but they want to kind of discount those things that we see are the things that typically can get you in the most trouble. So it's being taught. Wow. Very well said. That's exactly why I wanted to talk about this, because a lot of times we just don't, we're our own worst enemy. You know, we just don't even understand. We don't know what we don't That's know. That's correct. I say that a yes. lot. On so <laughs> true. <laughs> That's one of the things I, I learned when I started working at the bedside was, I don't know anything. I thought I, I just finished school. I thought I just spent years in school to learn stuff. And I just started realizing what I didn't know. Because as you, you come across you know, time again, after time again, after time again, this procedure or that intervention or understanding this disease process or how all of the things that can happen and all the labs that, that affect it. And, and it's, there's so much, you have to spend years in actual practice to learn that stuff. It's important to pay attention and also important for continuing education. That's right. Um, That's so right. that we can continue to learn. And it's important to realize as nurses, here's the thing that I learned. When I graduated, and, I, and we'll talk about this later when we talk about myself, but I went to a four-year traditional undergraduate program. When I graduated, and I went to a really great school that prepared me well, but when I graduated and I got out, I was like, man, I don't know enough. I knew enough to be safe and to be a generalist, but it takes about, you have heard, takes two to three years, sometimes two to five years to get into that mode where you're like, wow. I really know what I'm doing now. And then I went back to my graduate program, graduated and thought, man, I still don't know enough, right? I thought graduate education is going to get me even more prepared. But it really is to make sure that we're safe. We know what we don't know and we know how to ask for help when we need it. Not until I finished my doctoral program did I finally say, wow, I think they finally taught me enough to be a great nurse. <laughs> Yeah, after all those years and all that experience, this article, as you said, it really outlines exactly, you know, what can happen, what, she, you know, some things that she acknowledges that she maybe did wrong that she wished she could have redone. And then it also goes into very specific detail about some things that you can do to protect yourself. So I definitely encourage you to look this article up and read it thoroughly, especially you know, if you're going to nurse practitioner school and, you know, doing this sort of practice. And if you're a current nurse practitioner, I think it's an, an important story. But here's the other thing. I think that this nurse was too hard on herself. I think she needed to give herself credit because like we just, like I just said, it takes about five years 
to feel really comfortable in your practice and you're still learning, you're still growing. Healthcare changes. You need to do continuing ed, but you're still learning. And so when I read the article, I, it didn't seem like she had been in practice 20 years, right? So if she was a recent private practice nurse practitioner, she was still learning. I think she was a little hard on herself just because it was probably so, oh, it was, it was overwhelming what she had been through. And it seemed everyone was against her, right? The board of nursing. So she, she was humble. She humbled herself. She acknowledged what she hadn't done well. But I think she was a little harder on herself than she needed to be, because I believe at the point in her career where she was, she probably was doing really great practice, right? And it just brought, was brought to her attention because of something that occurred that maybe she could have done things a little differently. That would have happened over time without this. So I think as nurses, we tend to be too hard on ourselves. Yes, that's true. Well, there's no doubt about that. How many of us, when we first, you know, when we're working at the bedside, even go drive home in tears because we made a mistake. You're not going to ruminate over all of the wonderful and amazing things that you did and the people that you helped. No, you're going to think over and over and over again about the one mistake that you made, right. the one thing, mm. you know, that's, right. that's what we do to ourselves. That's right. So I think that's why it's important to remind nurses just, out there of that. Just remember, you know, if you are planning to go into pain management or do it with both eyes open, because, you know, you do have to be cognizant of the possibility that the DEA is going to be targeting you and your practice. Expect them to have all kinds of weapons to use against you, computer programs that can detect prescription writing patterns and that sort of thing. You have to be careful. And if you do find yourself in the situation, it's not going to be pretty. It's definitely not going to be pretty. Think about the way they, they came in. You know, they, they did that on purpose. They Do you think they had to walk into this pain clinic like, no, or not a pain clinic, this clinic like this? No, they didn't have to do this the way they did it. They did that to intimidate, to get what they wanted, the response that they wanted. And they got the response that they wanted. That's right. Why would they walk in with ski masks? That was so mm -hmm. inappropriate. It was to intimidate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just remember, try to maintain composure, try to cooperate with the investigation, but you can't admit liability. You can't sign documents that going to agree to surrendering your prescriptive authority. And, you know, they're there to primarily gather evidence for future use and, and, and obviously to eventually prosecute you. So... It doesn't mean that you have to communicate them without an attorney. That's, right. That's the first thing you should ask for. That's so important. So just keep that in mind. You know, this is just a small sliver, a small sliver of the multitudes of providers, doctors, nurses, practitioners, nurse practitioners, PAs in the United States who've been targeted and continue to be targeted by the DEA for what our government has considered to be over-prescribing and illegally prescribing mm -hmm. opiates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it does it happen? yes. It yes. absolutely happens and it's a problem, but they don't seem to be differentiating sometimes. And the last thing I'll say is it's, it's interesting to me that I remember when the cultural shift occurred. Historically, patients complained that their pain had not been managed well when they were in the hospital. Again, patient surveys at the end of their stay. And all of a sudden the pendulum swung and it swung all the way to the opposite end. Pain management, pain management, that's, that's where your focus should be. No patient should be in pain while they're in the hospital. And then we ended up in this situation where a lot of providers were afraid not to prescribe 
because of that pendulum shifting. And where was their protection at that time when we were being forced, in a sense, to address a concern that a patient satisfaction survey showed us across the nation was problematic, right? So then we have now this other end of the spectrum, and hopefully the now, all of a sudden, all opioids that have been prescribed is causing now this pendulum to come back, swing back. Hopefully we find a middle ground that's safe for all. But I remember when all of a sudden we had to be vigilant about pain management without a lot of guidelines in place. It wasn't that long ago. I I went to nursing school. I started nursing school in 2013. And I can remember being taught that pain was the was it the sixth vital sign? Yes. I think. Yes. Fifth or sixth vital That's sign. how it started. And they emphasized that. They really did. I can remember. Actually, I can remember being kind of surprised about it, but they drove it home in That's nursing right. school when That's I, you know, when that wasn't that long ago. Yes. And, and then think about how the shift was identified in the news. All of these providers are over prescribing, but no one talked about what, what we were told we had to do. So there, there are a lot of things that have caused us to get to this point, but I'm thankful that the shifting has occurred again and we're beginning to look at it, but we've got to be able to have, you know, the law enforcement look at it in a different way and understand the problem. You guys, I started travel nursing. So I've been talking about Trusted Health now for, what, a couple of years. They've been sponsoring the podcast. I've had friends that have used them. They sound like this wonderful, amazing company. It all sounds so just easy and like streamlined and just perfectly efficient and just it's like an easy process to go through. Now I'm doing it myself and I've gone through the whole process. I've done my first couple of weeks as a travel nurse with Trusted Health, and I can 100% with confidence tell you that everything is 100% true. It really is a wonderful company, and it works exactly the way they say it does. It's so easy. I would encourage anyone who's listening to this, if you are considering travel nursing, definitely do it. Go to At least go to trustedhealth.com. Be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they know that we sent you there. If you are even a little bit curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse, fill out a profile, and you can see what jobs are out there waiting for you. Well, that brings us to our good nurse story. And I'm so excited to get to talk to you about all of your accomplishments and, you know, get some insight from our listeners about what all you've had to go through and and maybe get some advice for them. We have a lot of, we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast who aren't even in nursing school yet, who actually I've heard from high schoolers who love to listen to this podcast because they get to this conversation that you and I are having. This is, you know, this is week in and week out. This is how we, what we do. And they're like, oh, I feel like I'm just sitting in the break room listening to you guys talk. And they love that, like behind the curtain, you know, getting to to hear it. It gets them excited about nursing school. So I'm really excited for them to hear from you and kind of from the, from your perspective and all of your accomplishments and, and for you to be able to give them some advice. This is, you know, as I said, Dean Lorna, she is a dean um, of the School of Nursing at Samuel Merritt University and a professor. She's taught everything from accelerated BSN courses, DNP programs to research and leadership. She is a native of California. She has three adult children and three granddaughters and one on the way. Well, we have four now. <laughs> the one on the way is now nine, oh. nine months old. <laughs> <Is> now <here. laughs> yes, yes. 
She enjoys time with her family, travel, hiking, off-roading, gardening, do-it-yourself projects, old movies, and audio audible books, which I do too. I love, oh my goodness, I love audiobooks. So first of all, what is your passion in nursing and what are, you know, what are you the most passionate about when it comes to nursing? You know, I I think if I if I had to choose one, I think it really is a nursing education because as we have kind of alluded to in our conversation about prescribing, we can make a huge difference, not only in healthcare, in, but in our communities when we educate nurses well. And so and that's probably why I've been in academe for all these years, because I really believe in nursing education. But here's the caveat for me. I'm not a traditionalist when it comes to nursing education. I was always the one that closed my classroom door and did things that were different than what everyone else was doing because I knew the way I learned and what made a difference for me. And so I wanted the students to not just memorize, but to understand and connect the dots. Any student that's ever been in a class of mine always says, Dr. K always tells us to connect the dots, connect the dots, because then you can you can make inferences, you can stand at any bedside and know where to start. And so nursing education, I love students and I love teaching students about nursing. So yeah, that's probably my biggest passion. And then there's a rippling effect for everything else that kind of lends itself back to education. I love that. You have a master's degree in child adolescent psychiatric mental health nursing. That's a mouthful. You have a PhD in nursing from UCLA with a focus on nursing research and worked for many years in neurosurgical ICU. Wow. Oh, bless you. And also worked as an advanced practice child adolescent psychiatric mental health uh, clinical nurse specialist and maintaining a small private practice while working in academia for the last 27 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just can't, that's exhausting. Earned tenure and full professor status while working in academia. Well, I mean, that's quite an accomplishment in and of itself. So all of the research in, that you've done, that's really fascinating. Research fascinates me. And you were the first person to publish the idea of depression as a fact of life among high socioeconomic status African-American men attending college. Can you tell us more about that research and you know what all was involved? Sure, in I, I'd be happy to. It's a long story because it's my career of research, but I'll try and hit the high highlights. As a little girl, I always wanted to be just like Madame Curie, right? I always knew I wanted to do research and study because I was always questioning things. I, I love to find answers to questions. And so research, I think, was always in my trajectory from childhood. It's interesting when you have that kind of dream as a little girl, and then years later, you're like, wow, I actually did it. (laughs) I actually got to do those things. And so I really was interested in bench science, ironically. And so that's why I chose to go to UCLA, because nurses at UCLA do bench science. So we looked at cell lines, we looked at, you know, microscopic kinds of connections to healthcare and and disease processes. And that's what I was most interested in, looking at CD4 levels, when we talk about the immune system, that's where my passion started. And so what I discovered as a doctoral student at UCLA was, hmm, this is like this is like putting the cart before the horse. I need to understand what captivates the person 
before I start looking at all the cellular stuff? What's going on with that person to begin with? And so I decided I wanted to talk to young men and I wanted to talk to people about their perceptions of depression because I believed in what I noted was a lot of people of color were being misdiagnosed with things like conduct disorder rather than depression. And I thought, this is depression. This isn't conduct disorder. This is depression. Anyone else would see see this as depression. Why are you missing it? So I started off my lit review with misdiagnosis, right? Why are people, clinicians, missing depression? Depression is like the easiest diagnosis to make when you see it. It's so obvious. And why were they missing it? And it led me to a lot of information on cultural misunderstanding, cultural assumptions, right? And, And so... I started developing, you know, my 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 idea and I thought, well, if they're misdiagnosing, is it because people of color aren't articulating their symptoms well enough? Are they not are they themselves misunderstanding the symptoms as well so that when they go to see someone or if they do go to see someone, they're just saying I'm fine, um, I'm good and it's missed. So I wanted to know what their perceptions were about depression, because if we understood that, it might help us understand how to better diagnose. And so I was really interested in men, but I'm a student. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, men and women and someone on my committee, thank goodness I chose a very important people to be on my committee because I knew how they thought and they could help challenge and grow me. One of the people on the committee said, why are you adding women? I don't even see you interested in women. I said, you mean I can do just men? (laughs) And so that's how it led to me looking at men. One of my other concerns as a researcher and as a woman of color myself was the fact that too often research that dealt with people who looked like me was based on people in the inner city that had a specific lifestyle that wasn't, didn't represent Every single one of us didn't represent me at all. And so I wanted to look at people who more represented me more, who represented my, I have two sons and a daughter, who represented my sons, young African-American men who've never been in trouble. So there are those groups too that no one ever talks to. So I wanted to do a study and talk to them. So I did perceptions of depression amongst those young, more affluent African-American men. The really great thing was in the beginning when I went through IRB and got approval to do my study, I wanted to start because a lot of the literature at the time talked about churches and barbershops and recruiting people from there. So I go to this church. I'm so excited with my poster, trying to invite people to talk about depression men. So the men that would walk past my my poster said, why don't you talk about prostate? cancer. I was like, I'm not interested in prostate cancer. I want to talk about depression. They said, well, good luck. And they walked past me and never stopped to want to talk about depression, which is not unusual, right? You talked about people not wanting to to, um, talk about depression. So on one of my weekend walks with my youngest son, who at the time was probably a freshman in college, he said, 
you need someone to help you recruit that looks like the client, the, the, the participants you want. Why don't you let me do it? I said, I don't think I can do that. You're my son. I, I don't know. So I talked to my chair and she said, of course, go back to IRB and get approval. And the IRB gave me approval. And I was doing an ethnographic study, which is a qualitative study where you have an opportunity to do focus groups and and begin to understand the concept rather than looking at the numbers and concepts that you know a lot about. So we didn't know a lot about it. And so I got permission and my son started recruiting. And the great thing is because he was in college and he had left California to go to college, many of his friends were from around the nation. They weren't just Californians or the state that he was in for college. They were coming from lots of different cities around the nation. And so we got this wonderful, broad perspective of young men from places like Ohio, from Atlanta, Georgia, from California, from Southern California versus Northern California. It was really wonderful. And so we did our focus groups. They understood depression, but they thought that they were stronger than most because most people couldn't have dealt with what they had been through and managed. And they believed that they could just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and keep on going. And like everyone tells you, be strong. You can get through this. And a lot of cultures believe, well, pray. You're not praying enough if you're feeling depression, right? You you need to use your faith. And all of these different scenarios that they had been told growing up. And ironically, during some of our focus groups, they confronted each other. And one or two young men went in for treatment and said, I think you're right. I guess I might be depressed. One young man who came from another state, got to college, was a straight A student in high school, gets to college and stays in his room and doesn't go to class because he's depressed because of the changes in moving from another state, having lived with his grandmother and all the things he had been through, depression, right? So I did focus groups, uh, we we did, uh, we recorded everything, had a transcriber transcribe all the data. I did all the, the data analyses, looking for key words and key themes, and we found depression. And ironically, 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 I did this research early 2000s, the number one factor that caused them depression, not family stressors, police stops. Can you imagine? Here we sit, 2021, 21 years later, and it's the same thing, police stops. They talked about their pulse rate going up. They talked about their palm sweating. They talked about being afraid that they would not live, leave that stop alive. And mind you, when I got permission from the IRB to let my son help me with recruiting, he and another young man, and this was the most fun part of the focus groups, I always had the two young men volunteer to facilitate the focus group discussion so that I was an observer and not kind of leading Right? I didn't want to, be, I wanted them to do it themselves. And my son shared openly. <laughs> we lived in LA. He was stopped going to UCLA to play basketball many times with his friends in the car because they looked suspicious. The good thing about California, to a degree, is like my son said, police understand the differences and they can kind of tell which person is doing something they shouldn't be. They tend to try to 
do that kind of policing, where some places they just see as a young man of color and you're guilty by association with your skin color, right? So I'm listening as a mom, but as a researcher to my son and his friends, not his, but yeah, some of his colleagues and friends. It was a, we did where you invite others. So different guys from different groups invited. So you had, um, oh, it slips my mind right now, but there's a snowball. It's called snowball recruitment where you, you know, it's kind of a snowball where one person invites another. So a couple of the guys on that first focus group were some of his classmates at his college. And so they were telling these stories. I'm a mother. <laughs> I'm listening but I had to keep on my researcher hat and listen. They made me aware of something that I hadn't been aware of. So think about what your mom and what your parents tell you before you leave the house. Don't, please don't get stopped by the police. I want you to come home alive. I want you to, to make it through the night. And I thought, wow, I've said that to my own kids. Please be careful. I'm not worried about you. I trust you, but I don't want the police to kill my child. That was huge. That came out. Every focus group was done with a different group of young guys. Some of them didn't know each other. Some of them were recruited from a church and not the college. So, and they all said the same thing. Can you imagine? And ironically, we did any of the participants that volunteered to be the um, facilitators of the group. We did a debrief after the fact. And, and, and my son brought it up. And he said, I said that because I trust you. I knew as my parent, you were still the researcher and I had to maintain research, but we could have that conversation during the debrief because I'm not going to interrupt as a mother and say, what? That would have been so inappropriate, right? But I had my own feelings. And so I had to keep very detailed notes about my own emotions and feelings as I was listening so that at different points in the transcription, I could remember what I was thinking at the moment. So it was amazing what we did. And it, and it was my chair. I was afraid as a nursing student, doctoral student, because it, within my research process, I said that I would have other experts look at the trans transcriptions to see if what I was thinking was truly what others saw in the data as well. And it was my chair of my dissertation who said, Lorna, she said, this is, she said, I get the same key concepts that your categories that you're getting in themes. She said, but here's the thing that I keep seeing that you have to tease out and separate out. She said, I see depression described. She said, but I also see depression described as a fact of life. They're saying it's a fact of life. If you're young, male, and of African descent, they're calling it a fact of life. And I said, I know, but I thought I had to keep it in with depression. And that's how it got teased out. And when I used my article that I wrote about this to, you know, friends of mine who are pastors have used to generate discussions in their churches. And I've, I've used it in courses where I've taught research to stimulate thoughts about research and, and different research methodology. And I've had other men of color from Latin groups, Hispanic groups, and other groups say, this is my reality too, right? And so it's helpful. And those young men, ironically, those same young men who were college students then are in their 40s now. And so to, to watch the process of their lives, because those focus groups were kind of therapeutic in nature, not 
intentionally, but just ironically, they were very therapeutic. They were uh, opportunities for them to share. One young man said, well, you know, they say Black men don't talk. I said, don't talk? Are you kidding me? I had to go back to the IRB to extend the length of our focus group because I couldn't get you guys to stop talking, right? They were so excited. It was cathartic for them. They were able to get a lot of just a lot of feelings out in an environment with all of them. There were usually about probably 10 guys in each group that we did. And so that's the research. And it's kind of fun to to talk to them because I have an advisory board of those young men still today. And we chat and we talk about how their lives have changed over time. And I'm thinking about looking at doing another study and talking to them 21 years later. So that's my research. It's so much fun. And again, think about what I said. My passion is about education. That research was able to educate so many other people and groups. And some of the young men said they wanted to use the study to work with police officers. Well, one of my sons, my oldest son is LAPD, right? He's aware of my research. And I know that it's made a difference in the way that he does his job. So we've changed, we've educated, and we've informed many. And that's what you would hope research would do, man. So many things about everything that you were talking about. First of all, just one thing that hit me so hard in the gut was when you said that you over and over again have said to your your sons and the other women that you know have said to their sons to please don't get pulled over by the police. I want you to come home safe. And that how you've emphasized that. I have three sons myself. My oldest is uh, 29. He'll be 30. I have a 22-year-old son and I have a 16-year-old son that's, that'll be 17 here in a, f- a few months. And I have to tell you, I have never had that conversation with any of my boys ever. It would never even occur to me to say that. I can't even describe how that makes me feel to think that that's all I have to do is just put myself in your position. And I'm just, it's overwhelming to think of living your entire life Mm -hmm. like that. Oh, yes. And to think that this happened, you know, you did this research a long time ago. A lot of things are coming out right now in the past year or two that we've made so much progress and so many people are having their eyes opened to, you know, and just sort of looking around going, what? What do you mean this happens? It's just we live in our own little world. We all live in our own little bubble and we think everything outside of our bubble is like what's inside of our bubble. And we just don't, we're just trying to exist. (laughs) We're just trying to manage and raise our kids. And we don't know. All of a sudden with maybe with social, maybe something good has come out of social media. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much that's not, but (laughs) you know, maybe some good has come out of it because this sort of thing has been spread so much that it's causing a lot of people to actually acknowledge and realize and be aware that this is going on and then all of a sudden just be willing to stay, you know, just to say something about it, to speak mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. to do something about it and to think, wow, I wouldn't want to be in that position. What can I do to help? So that's the first thing that just absolutely, like I said, I don't know, it just it, it hits you in the gut when you think about about that going on. But then just, you know, just that the idea that this what this was going on two decades yes. ago. It's not it's not like, oh, all the stuff's going on, everybody's talking about it, let's do some research. This ha- this is not this is not new. No, not at all. Not at all. And when you read Isabel Wilkerson's book, 
if you haven't, you probably should. And the, the nurses listening in or those students that are listening in interested. Isabel Wilkerson has written two amazing books that talk about how long, I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years now um, in just different ways. You think about in the 1800s and, and what happened with slave traders and going out to get people back and bring them back to plantations. And so it's, 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 it's just kind of changed over time, but it's the same kind of experience for those, um, you know, especially African-Americans. And it's interesting because I read on social media all the time now, you see people talking about it. Yeah, I had that conversation with my kids. It's almost like people are now saying it out loud until those young men said it in a focus group. It hadn't hit me and I did it. <laughs> I did it all the time. And it didn't even hit me until I heard them say that. And they said, think about what our parents tell us. Tell us, I bet you've said it. That's what they said to me. I bet you've said it to your son. And I had. And I'll tell you a, a story my son said. I told you I lived in Nashville. Well, I lived in Hendersonville. And my son was coming home from, from college one day, driving. And um, he was stopped. And the police said, where are you going? And how can you afford a car like this? So this is a Cali kid. <laughs> this is a Cali kid. I lived in Hendersonville. We know Johnny Cash lived in Hendersonville. It's a nice area, right? How do you, where are you going? He's parked, he pulled over by the golf course. And how can you afford this car? This kid goes, a Jetta? A Volkswagen Jetta? <laughs> Just like, what do you mean? This is the kind of car kids in California drive when you get your first car, right? A Volkswagen Jetta. That's not a big price item, right? And they said, and the police said, I can't even afford this. And Ben said he started to say, what? Then you need another job. And he said, mm -mm. he said, my mother lives right there. You can see her house from here. He said, all I could think of was I need to be quiet so I get home tonight, get home to my mom. And one young man in the, in the, in the focus group said, he's from Ohio, sat on the curb while they took his seats out of his car. They took everything out of his car, saying they were looking, they were searching his car for probable cause. And he sat on the curb the whole time they're searching his car, crying, just wanting to call his mother and they wouldn't let him. Crying on the curb. And then they said, oh, well, we didn't find anything. Be on your way. Left. His seats were out of his car. Everything they took out, they didn't put back. Those are the stories that I heard from those young men. Yeah, thank goodness today we have cell phones <laughs> and people record exactly. things like that happening. That's probably get done more, you know, to really make changes because, you know, hear a story like that and you just think, surely that didn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. There's who the police wouldn't treat people like that. Surely not. Exactly. And then if you but if you're watching it on a video, you have no choice that's right. but to just accept the reality that's right. that that's the world we right. live in. Or the question becomes, well, what did you do? Why would they have stopped you? I <laughs> you must have done something, not necessarily. So that's my research. And can you, can you imagine? See, this is the thing that students don't realize. And I tell students this all of the time, especially those middle schoolers and high schoolers. Nursing is the one profession that once you get an undergraduate degree in, you can go in so many directions. You think about the things that I wanted to do. I was able to do 
extremely well as a nurse. And to have that nursing education, it opens your mind, it opens your ideas, it opens you up to a vast array of a lot of different options. I mean, I have friends who are nurse attorneys, I have friends who are nurse legislators. I mean, nurses do so much. Yes, absolutely. That's a that's another thing that, that we talk about a lot, all the different things that you can do with your nursing career and, and how you can advance and all the paths you can take. You have accomplished, you know, so many different things. You in addition to all the things that we've we've talked about, you're archival secretary for the Council of Nursing and Anthropology and served as president elect for the California Association of Colleges of Nursing. I mean, just all of the different things that you have done on all of your research. You're an UCLA Distinguished Alumni Honor, which I'm not at all surprised. I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that. You know, many of our listeners are very young and probably, you know, hear all of the things that you've accomplished and get overwhelmed, you know, just at the thought of doing all of those things and just think, wow, that sounds exhausting. How do you think your younger self would have reacted to hearing that this was going to be her path? If someone said, hey, here's what all you're going to do over the next however many years. Do you think she would have been overwhelmed? at the thought or excited, uh, motivated by the challenge? What do you think? I think excited. And I, I'll tell you why I think excited. Because in my sophomore year of my undergraduate program, my advisor asked me when she was giving me my schedule for the quarter, she said, Lorna, what do you think you'll be doing 20 years from now? Once you're done um, with school in 20 years, where would you want to be? Where do you think you'll be? And I said, I'll be a dean of somebody's school of nursing. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine that long ago making that statement? And you know, I don't know why. I don't know why. I, I'm thinking back, I don't know why I said that, but I thought that would be a fun thing to do because I love nursing education. And I thought, you know, I'm always, always end up in leadership in some way because at the time I was a president of our class at the time. So I thought, that makes sense, the leadership. And so she <laughs> she laughed and she said, we're going to make sure that happens. And ironically, when I finished school, once I got some experience under my belt, they invited me back to be a clinical instructor because she thought, you said you wanted to be a dean. In order to be a dean, you need to keep going to school. And if we make you a clinical instructor, it forces you to go back to school. And that's how it all started. That's how it all started. And I think, you know, even as a little girl. I, ironically, I had desks and a chalkboard in my bedroom and I had my own little classroom with my dolls and stuff. So even then I was teaching. So I, I don't think I'm surprised in that sense, but I'm surprised that it actually really happened, right? You dream and you think, wow, my dreams have, have come true. And, and so that's the surprise. You have faith that something's going to happen, but when it actually happens, it feels a little surreal, but it's not overwhelming. And, and I think each person should do like I do, set those, set the goal high. There are so many people in nursing. Nursing tends to be really focused on mentorship and there's always someone there to push you on a little bit. There are people I'm pushing forward now. I told someone not too long ago, I said, I want you in this role because when, can you imagine when I get ready to retire, you, wish you should be the shoe-in for my position. How do you mentor people and prepare them for those kinds of things? And you ask those questions. of and, and I think we need to ask those questions more and more. 
And, and I tell students that all the time when I go, our school does a wonderful job of inviting potential students in for like an orientation to what nursing school is about. And they've asked me to, to speak. And I always tell them, I said, you're going to be taking prerequisites where you have to memorize. I said, nursing is an art and a science. So that means memorization is probably not going to be, you need to know how to connect the dots more than memorize. If you're memorizing, you're not connecting the dots. And how do you learn to filter through textbooks that are four inches thick, <laughs> right? How do you do that? You, you start reading things that you don't know anything about. Don't start at the beginning of the chapter. Start with the things you don't know anything about because the beginning of the chapters are always anatomy and physiology, and you've already had a course in that. So don't reread something you've already kind of familiar with. So those are, you know, those mentorship kinds of genes that I think nurses just come so naturally with. There are always going to be people around and don't be afraid to say to someone, I really want to do nurse practitioner, even though you're just in your freshman year of your undergraduate program, because a faculty is going to pull you aside and keep in contact with you to make sure you reach that goal. Wow. I love that. I love it. And I think that just knowing wherever you are, you have to really believe in yourself. You have to believe that you are capable of getting there. You know, could you be the dean of a nursing school when you're, you know, 20 years old and still in nursing school? Of course you couldn't, you know, it's, it's, it's but you will get there. That's you, right. You will get there. If you can get through nursing school, you can do anything, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. I tell students that all the time. You can do anything. That's right. And and sometimes it does take, you know, we look at that wonderful picture of footprints in the sand, right? Sometimes it takes someone around you that sees your potential, even when you don't recognize it being there. You know, my parents raised me to have that kind of self-confidence and self-esteem to know that I could do anything, but not everyone has that. So there's usually someone around that will notice something. There's a student, there's one of my former students now that emails me probably every other month. Okay, I've decided I'm going to do my graduate program. I said, good, where's it, where are you going to school, right? And so we have those conversations. I haven't been to faculty or his teacher in probably eight years, right? But he, he's emailing me because he knows that I'm one that, that noticed something in him. And I tell students all the time, you're going to come back and teach for me one of these days. You better promise that now. Or I'm not going to admit you to the program, right? So that's that motivation. <laughs> <laughs> that's the motivation that sometimes you need to give a student so that they start thinking about it, milling it around. They may not be ready they may not think they can, but they remember those words because they come back to me later. Say, remember when you told me, I think I'm ready now. And I love that. I love that. Well, you guys, I told you, I promised that she was going to be amazing and she did all kinds of wonderful, amazing things. And I definitely, this did not disappoint one bit. And I just remember that that she is the Dean of School of Nursing for Samuel Merritt University. And if you're thinking about going back to school, you could literally be going to the same school where Dean Lorna is and has her influence. So just type in Samuel Merritt University, Oakland, California, and you'll find us. If you are interested, definitely go to smumsn.com for more information. And, you know, you can find me if you want to send me a message, send me an email at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And you can find us on, we're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff can find us on there and i also want to remind you guys even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy be a good nurse <laughs> i love it that's awesome <laughs> thank you thank you so much for having me this has been such fun mm-hmm.